Tonight's scripture reading comes from three different passages. First, I'll be reading Isaiah 66, 1 through 2. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is my resting place? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things are mine, says the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, to the humble and contrite in spirit, who trembles at my word. Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the, in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Ephesians 1, 3 through 10. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, so to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to gather up all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. The word of the Lord. these writers are thinking, making such gigantic statements about things that they can't really know that much about. I mean, what are they even talking about? Everything? That seems to be the point. They're talking about everything. Everything in time, the beginning and the end, everything in the universe, planets and stars and giraffes and fungi and tigers and dogs and the Federal Reserve. How can you possibly speak about everything? Once you've formed one little word with your little mouth or put four or ten or three letters together on your thin little piece of paper, 
You've eliminated every other word or letter you might have said or written, written, which is nothing compared to everything. You know? If you want to communicate something about everything, maybe it's better not to even open your mouth. Just breathe in and out. Silence may be more articulate on the subject. Words are arbitrary signs that never fully represent what they supposedly signify. But I actually like to use the word thing because I like the sort of open-endedness of it. Thing is unspecified. And sometimes I need to be unspecific because I don't really know the specifics. But editors rarely accept it. It's too vague. Be more concrete. What do you even mean by thing? What thing? But these writers of scripture have certainly gotten away with using it a lot. All things, all things, everything, everything. They keep saying those words over and over. In Isaiah, God says, all these things my hand has made. Thing one and thing two. All sorts of thingy things. John says, in the beginning was the world, all things were made through him. So matter? But what about antimatter? What constitutes a thing? The writer of Ephesians says God has a plan in Christ for the fullest of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. The expanding universe? The multiverse? I think these writers are kind of trying to talk about something that they really don't know that much about. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. I've actually always loved that verse because it sounds so graceful to me. But if I think about trying to explain it to my kids, I can't imagine not lapsing into gibberish. They would definitely look at me suspiciously. They're teenagers, and they're actually a little bit smarter than me. I can't really help them with their math homework anymore. Miles tries to explain dark energy to me. I don't study physics. I study the Bible. What can I possibly know about the foundation of the world? You could read these enormous claims that Scripture makes, and you could conclude that they seem incredibly naive, a little bit ancient, and a little bit stupid. Christ's going to unite all things in him? I guess he didn't know about dark energy. God saying all these things are mine? Like some disoriented, old, outdated, irrelevant, childish old god making blustery claims that make him look silly. You could read these scriptures and think that these writers were ignorant of what we know now. It's almost embarrassing them fumbling about trying to speak and write about everything. You also could read these sorts of texts and find them offensive. How can people of one belief system believe that they know everything about everything? Fanatics making imperious claims about their beliefs as if it's self-evident that their system must dominate the world because it possesses the absolute truth about everything. And unfortunately, this is often how these sorts of scriptures have been taken and are taken and used. I mean, it's actually hard to comprehend 
all the violence that has been done to the earth and the people of the earth when one set of people claim to possess the truth about everything and intend to protect their system from corruption and force their truth on the rest of the world by any means necessary. The Inquisition. The church burned people alive for thinking the wrong thoughts. Tortured people who maybe didn't frame their reality in terms of Christ, who maybe had a different word for God, people who were interested in some different points of view, science and scholarship. Conquistadors exterminating ancient civilizations for Christian empire. You take these sorts of huge claims about everything and you mix them up with the sort of domination, ambition, growth-obsessed empire orientation, and you can get some pretty twisted missionary zeal. There were all sorts of cultures where people treated the earth like it was sacred. Peoples who had non-exploitative relationships with the natural world, and the church brought them Western dualism, the four spiritual laws often paving the way for strip mines and dams, and the spirit of capitalism and environmental disaster. But really, however crazy it may seem, I really, really, really don't believe the enormous claims of scripture about all things were meant to set its hearers on the path to subdue all things beautiful and various and different for the sake of some Christendom. I really, really don't think that the writer of Ephesians meant his readers to take his words and bend them and wreck everything up. I don't think the church was being the church when it tortured heretics. Karl Barth says the church is the church when and where it witnesses to Christ. And in this case, the victim is clearly the witness, not the inquisitor. The writer of Ephesians speaks sweepingly, really effusively, of all things coming together in the universe. And I think it's because he and his little community that had come together had begun to experience this coming together of things and people that they never, ever, ever thought would ever come together. It was because they were experiencing this sort of radical shifting in their beings and their consciousness and their perceptions that was so different from their previous paradigms that it began to give them this enormous hope. And what precipitated that shift was a breakdown in hostilities. I think I get that word. Hostilities. Like when you're set against something and it feels kind of cold and agitating and tight and you couldn't ever even imagine coming together with this thing that you're hostile towards. And sometimes something breaks down a breakdown in hostilities, a boundary between people who had different beliefs and backgrounds and educations and values, a boundary between people who didn't like each other, was seeming to become dissolved. And for this community, it was the, that the Jews and Gentiles 
were actually coming together. In some way that seemed surprisingly generous. And this was giving them a glimpse of the writer says the breadth and the length and the height and the depths of the love of a God who is in rivalry with nothing at all. So you see in him that there is no reason at all to be hostile to anything. God is a life-giving, creative lover, and somehow in the passion of Christ, they saw that this creator of love and life stops at nothing, stops at no stop sign doesn't operate according to the structures that the world has set in place, is not threatened by anything, in competition with nothing, not at all confined by a religious system. A passionate, creative lover, it sort of goes without saying, is different than a system that runs like a machine and controls everything, and subdues everything. Loving and creating is something different than controlling everything. I mean, have you ever loved anything? Have you ever created anything? Have you ever given birth to anything? It's not usually a very neat process. Love is messy. You get dirty when you make art. Having kids is like chaos in so many ways. That the church is a sign of new creation almost guarantees that it is not a slick, clean, smooth-running machine. It's more like a messy thing that points to something beyond itself, like a new creation. The writer of Ephesians is sort of casting about using this huge language in part because he has begun to have an appreciation of how small and narrow the ways that they've been used to thinking seem in the face of what is being revealed to them. And it seems like something has blown his mind. And it's not a dogmatic formulation that has blown his mind. It's that in his community, he's begun to, he says, know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. See, his knowledge has been surpassed. He says he feels filled with all the fullness of God. He says Christ is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask and than all we think. God is able to create love in a place that seems so far from love and so dead to love. I hadn't really read Ephesians for a long time, but it's really beautiful, actually. A really beautiful letter. And if you haven't read a beautiful letter for a long time, try reading this. But maybe you should skim over the parts where it gets into the household arrangements and how the husband is head of the wife. But it talks about God lavishing it, words that uses that word lavish. God has lavished us with grace upon grace. God makes us alive when we're dead. I like this part a lot. God makes everything very, very, very alive. Takes us from dull, 
cold, monotonous, narrow, widges, rigid, deathiness things, to some immeasurable deep and wild and alive beyond the limits of our usually stunted imagination, beyond what we can even think things. God, who's rich in mercy out of the great love that he has loved, even when we were dead, made us alive together in Christ. And the thing that's reached this author and grabbed a hold of his being is that, his, that this hostility has been undone. And this is the origin of the church, the sign of the church, the dissolution of hostility. The Spirit of God has broken down a hard and obstinate, alienating wall, and it seemed miraculous. It floored and amazed and filled him with this enormous, unspeakable hope. God plans nothing less than the gathering of everything, the cosmos, all people into this living unity. And it's not through coercion and armies and domination and punishment and judgment and keeping a tight ship and running a well-oiled, cold, hard machine, but love. I don't think this is all about making claims to absolute knowledge. It's not something hard like that. It's something that moves and lives and breathes. I mean, so the whole Jew and Gentile thing probably doesn't seem that stunning to us anymore because we've been hearing about it for 2,000 years. But I think that we are familiar with cultures and religious systems that teach us to know who we are, teach us to know how to feel good about ourselves, over against others. It's likely we learn how to be an us. We form our identities as communities by defining ourselves over and against them. This is how communities form and how identities are forged. It's ubiquitous. Look at politics, political affiliations, just day to day, almost everything. It seems infinite. We aren't empire, fundamentalist, slick-running machine people. We're sort of anti-institution, co-op, critical of capitalism, accepting of ambiguity people. We aren't like the bad people. We're part of the good people. This way of knowing who we are and this way of forming communities, I mean, what else is there? seems crazy and mostly not completely realized here or anywhere, but the church, when and where it's the church, is the community that is a sign that this old way of belonging isn't infinite. The church is a sign of a whole different way of being together, a whole different way of forming identities. The church is the community that doesn't define itself over against or at least the sign of the possibility of this. And it's a hopeful possibility. Christians may be a million things, but sort of the center thing is that they are a people who have seen that the scapegoat is innocent. And I think that the people that were just beginning to come together around this revelation were beginning to enjoy 
the sort of flourishing, opening up, or being made alive, and it seems like it felt really good. Their hearts were getting bigger and richer and less and less narrow, and it must have seemed exhilarating. Experiencing the breakdown of the ancient boundaries between Jews and Gentiles. But I bet it sometimes also seemed a little bit uncomfortable. I mean, there'd been a lot of energy put into being separate. For a long time, people had heard, be ye holy as I am holy, as be ye separate as I am separate. But Jesus... He comes along and it's unnerving. Be holy as I am holy begins to look wildly different. Jesus comes on the scene and immediately violates the boundary, totally violates the system that's set in opposition, the clean and the unclean, the pure and the impure, the holy and the unholy. These things are supposed to be kept separate. Jesus touches everything. Lepers and sinners and Romans. Death. More than touches, he inhabits. He's not setting things apart, he's mixing it up. God in the flesh seems like some explosive revelation of non-separation. All things come together in Christ. That doesn't mean that the church should be fighting Buddhists, for heaven's sake. It's about this hope that the astounding love of God will move in us and through us. It's this crazy hope that all hatred and violence and abuse will end, that we'll stop scapegoating, scapegoating the other, and that we'll all come together in love. Of course that seems pretty far-fetched. Of course that seems really far off. Our government really isn't on that track. Gandhi is dead. And even in our most intimate lives, I mean, just go, try to go through a day and see if, that, see if you don't bond with someone by scapegoating someone or some other thing, something else. It's a really kind of regular way of being. It's the basis of humor. Lots of marriages survive on it. It is no small thing to say that the church is the sign of a new creation and that it points and leads away from this. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. I really don't think that's meant to sound like something exclusive. That would be the opposite of what the letter says Christ came to do. But I do think that it's meant to sound intimate. A little like a lever saying, whispering in your ear, I choose you. And the Hebrew, script, Hebrew scripture does talk about God as our lover, about God as our husband. Isaiah says God's love for us is like a woman's love for her baby nursing at her breast. The Gospel of John talks about the love between Christ and his beloved as that between the bride and the bridegroom. God's love may be very, very wide, but I don't think that doesn't mean that it's deep. It might seem like if a love is spread so wide, then it must be really thin. 
like sort of bland and sterile and fake. And that is like something that you get in the church sometimes, a love that feels a little thin, a bunch of people pretending to be nice, like they like you, but they really have no interest in knowing you. But the love Ephesians seems to be pointing to is not like some put-on positivity, but something that reaches deep inside to what is most shunned and what is most bereft and what most needs to be befriended. The light comes into the darkness. When God says in Isaiah that the world is my footstool, I don't really think that he meant there to be denigrating creation, like, I put my feet on you. When God says all these things are mine, I don't think God's being like a two-year-old megalomaniac. I think God means to say that all these things are precious to me. All things, everything, the least and the darkest in what we hide, the Spirit of God rests upon it all. And God wants to infect us with this sort of all-encompassing love. And we're called to point to this, even if we can only do it in some fumbling sort of a way.